So this has been quite a year. How do you think that it will be remembered? What would you say were the biggest political stories of 2023? Gosh, uh... How will the year be remembered? Well, I think I think the Israel war with Gaza, I, I know this is sort of presentism perhaps, is going to be remembered as possibly the political story of the year. I think it's going to look very different whether Biden goes on to win re-election or not. I think that if he goes on to lose re-election, this is going to be remembered as sort of a catastrophe for Democrats that they sort of watched in slow motion and didn't do anything about, sort of the way the Ruth Bader Ginsburg non-retirement was. And yeah. if he goes on to win, I think that... It's going to be another example of people overreacting to present trends. That's my colleague Isaac Chotner. Isaac is known for his rigorous, relentless interviews with public figures in politics, media, business, technology, and more. He has a knack for asking tough but fair questions that get to the heart of social and political issues. I've been wanting to have Isaac on the show for a while. I can't think of a better person to encapsulate what has truly been a momentous year in news. You're listening to The Political Scene. I'm Tyler Foggett, and I'm a senior editor at The New Yorker. So you did a lot of reporting on Gaza and on Israel this year. Um, I'm wondering sort of how you approached covering that subject in the form of Q&As. Yeah, I mean, I think that with any... um subject going on outside of America, especially there's a big role for Q&As or there can be a big role for Q&As in just kind of presenting information to people that readers or, you know, myself, lots of people might not sort of have the most information on. So I I like to think of them as somewhat informational in that sense. Um, So that was sort of what I set out to do after the October 7th attacks and then moving forward. And how did you keep it balanced? Because I feel like you've done a great job of interviewing people from different viewpoints, getting all of the sort of possible perspectives on the conflict captured in your interviews. How do you make sure that you're not accidentally prioritizing one perspective over the other just by virtue of who says yes to talking to you? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I I wish I had a better answer to that. Or maybe maybe this is uh, self-criticism that I don't kind of think in advance or plan stuff like that out. You know, I think that there were kind of two things going on in my mind about this. The first was I thought it was important to hear from some Palestinian voices just because I feel like that side is less heard in the American media, um, which, again, is probably better than it used to be, but still underrepresented. And then, you know, I guess you could say it was balanced. I, I felt criticism from some people who've been reading the interviews that people have not always found it balanced. But I think that what I just try to do is find interesting people people who I think can speak to one aspect of the conflict rather than sort of approaching it with the idea of, you know, I need to talk to one person who thinks that and another person that thinks that. Yeah. So one interview you did this year that went pretty viral was the interview with Daniela Weiss, a leader of Israel's settlement movement in the West Bank. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that conversation and what you learned from it and why you think that people were so interested in it when when it published. Well, you know, one of the things I'd wanted to do was talk to someone in the settlement movement because, you know, obviously the settlement movement is a is a very big thing and, you know, Israeli settlers have different points of view on different things, but I'd seen her speak in a documentary and I thought she'd be interesting to talk to. And one of the things that I thought was important about trying to talk to her is that we hear a lot about the settlements in Israel. They're something that you hear lots of critiques from, certainly in magazines like ours and in the media generally, and even from some politicians who are supportive of Israel. But the voices of those settlers, and in Daniela Weiss's case, 
somewhat startling, some of the things she had to say in the interview, and as said elsewhere, I thought that that voice wasn't so common in the American media discussion. And so I thought it would be helpful for readers to hear from someone, you know, Israeli settlements are a big part of the conflict, not so much in Gaza, but in the West Bank. And so I thought it would be interesting for readers to kind of hear how someone who is a leader of the settlement movement thinks and talks. So that's what I was trying to allow in that interview. What were some of the more startling things that she said, just for people who are listening to this podcast who haven't read the interview? Um, One thing that I think is is interesting is that she was very sort of upfront about the idea that the land, the land of the West Bank belongs to people like herself, Jews like herself. And she believes that there's a biblical reason for that. And that perspective, I think, um, you know, I think there's a broad sense that some of the conflict in the Middle East between Israelis and Palestinians is is one in part about religion, but but sort of hearing that stated so clearly, I thought was interesting. And she was also very upfront about the way she talked about civilian casualties in Gaza. I would say not expressing much sympathy for what was going on there. And so I thought I would try and sort of reach her on just a human level of saying, can we all be disturbed about people dying, whether it's on October 7th and the Hamas attacks or what's happening in Gaza now. And there was not a lot of um, a lot, a lot of soft touch to her answer about that. Were you surprised by that? I mean, you said that you saw her speak in a documentary, and so that's what made you interested in, in talking to her in the first place. But were you still surprised by what she said and sort of how extreme her position was? Or did you kind of already know what she was going to say, but thought that it was important for the public to read her words? Uh, You know, that's interesting. I mean, I think with interviews, it's a mix of both. I mean, you've chosen the person that you're going to interview. So you have some sense of what they're going to say or what their work is in some sense. So it's always a mix. I was a little bit surprised. I'd been told by uh, another reporter, not at our magazine, who's done some reporting on her that if I didn't ask questions in a very polite manner, she would just hang up the phone. There are definitely parts in the interview where it seems like she might be on the verge of hanging up. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I wasn't sure if she was going to. So I was I was sort of trying to tread very carefully in how I was asking questions. So I had some sense of, you know, how she might respond to some of the questions and what she might say. But I sort of wanted to talk about the sort of humanitarian angle, just in part because obviously this documentary was before October 7th and the war in Gaza. So um, I thought that might provide an opportunity to sort of understand her mindset. How do you balance the desire to sort of have an interview that's full of really good, vivid quotes with an interview that best represents a certain movement's ideology. I mean, obviously those two things can kind of go hand in hand, but I guess I'm wondering how you avoid talking to someone who is um, representing a movement or an ideology in the wrong way just because you happen to be speaking to someone who's really quotable but like extremely radical. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I think it's something that I and my editors struggle with. In this case, the reason I thought it was important was because her perspective, the the sort of blatant way in which she expressed her perspective was a big enough part of the conversation in the United States about Israel and the settlement movement. I think, though, from what you're saying broadly, I mean, you could go and interview someone who would make, you know, racist comments or anti-Semitic comments or whatever else, you know, some online follower of Trump who has racist and anti-Semitic things to say, whatever it may be. We're not so interested in airing that just because I feel like people have a broad sense of Trump has a lot of people on Twitter who say offensive things. And this felt to me, at least, I think the reason we wanted to talk to someone, despite some of the things she said, was we felt that it was a perspective that Americans should try and hear. Yeah, I'm interested in hearing more about just the decision to do something focused on the West Bank, because that interview, I mean, now we're obviously paying attention to the West Bank because there's been a surge in settler violence and the conflict very much involves 
the West Bank now. But when you did this interview with Weiss, it was in early November when everyone was very much focused on Gaza. And so what was it that made you think to look to the West Bank for answers? I mean, the main thing was just reports, as you mentioned, of settler violence starting to increase after October 7th. And I also think it's interesting. I think that um, there's a lot of criticism from large chunks of the American electorate and even some American politicians about the way Netanyahu has been fighting the war in Gaza. And, you know, I think probably safe to say that the Biden administration would prefer that they were dealing with a different government in Israel while the war is going on or indeed after the war is going on. And I do think that what the Israeli government's aims in Gaza are are somewhat unclear. I mean, they say it's to you know completely wipe out Hamas, but we don't know exactly what their aims are and what their long-term aims are for the region. And so I thought that looking at the West Bank could perhaps provide some bit of answer to that question of at least this current Israeli government, what are their long-term aims for dealing with the Palestinians? And obviously I think it's a depressing answer in this case, but I thought it could perhaps shed light on the larger larger question. Absolutely. So I'd like to ask you a little bit more about how you see the role of journalists in today's world, but first we're going to take a quick break. You'll hear more of the political scene from The New Yorker in just a minute. So Isaac, it seems like The New Yorker didn't used to publish very many Q&As. I mean, obviously, the magazine is known for its more narrative journalism, scene setting, long, perhaps too long sometimes, descriptions of things. And so I'm wondering how you see your interviews fitting into the rest of The New Yorker's coverage. Uh, Yeah, I always think of the Q&As as one of two things, and this is being overly broad. But one is sort of an informational interview with a subject matter expert who can explain something about, you know, some issue in politics or, you know, foreign affairs or whatever else. And in some ways it could even function the way like one of our comment pieces would or one of our columns would online. And it's sort of me talking to someone rather than, you know, one of our writers writing the column. And the second is is sort of more of a broad big picture interview, often with someone who's pretty well known that someone might read the interview, not for the information about a subject, but because they're interested in the person that I'm interviewing. And, you know, I think some of the best of those types of interviews, we do plenty of those now online, um, not just me, a lot of our colleagues, is not exactly the same as a New Yorker profile, but it's a different form of a profile. You know, a long Q&A can be a way of approaching a figure in the news or in culture and in the arts. So in that sense, I think it's at least in its mission similar to a lot of the coverage the New Yorker does. Have you found over the years that people have been like more likely to say yes to being interviewed by you or, or less likely? I mean, um, you know, not to get too meta, but you have become sort of well known for, I mean, there's a, a term for it now, chotnering is, is what it, people call it. You know, are people, do they seem afraid to talk to you sometimes? No, I mean, I would say that I've had more trouble getting Republicans kind of in the last three or four years than before that. But I think that for any of our colleagues who do any kind of political reporting, that they would say that that's true, too, that it's much harder at a place like The New Yorker, um, not just The New Yorker, you know, what I think is considered the mainstream media to get Republicans to talk to them. I think that's partially because they feel that their voters are not as trustful of the same sources of information. I think it's partially because they don't want to be asked questions about Donald Trump that they know they can't defend. So I think there are a lot of kind of structural reasons for it. But in terms of getting people kind of outside of politics in academia or whatever else, um, the arts, I haven't noticed it being particularly harder. So knock on wood. 
So you were talking about sort of the the mainstream media and, and journalism in general, and you've done some really great Q&As with other journalists and just people in the media world, which I wanted to talk to you about. So in June, you spoke with um, the former Nightline host, Ted Koppel, um, about Henry Kissinger. This was shortly after Kissinger turned 100, and as it turns out, shortly before he died. And you really pushed Koppel on his friendship with Kissinger and, and Kissinger's legacy and whether he views Kissinger as a war criminal. And so I wanted just to ask you what you found illuminating about that conversation. Yeah. I mean, I think that Kissinger, obviously one of the most important um, diplomatic political figures um, of the 20th century in the United States, huge, huge legacy in all kinds of different ways. And for me, one of the most interesting things about Kissinger, he's kind of long been an obsession of mine, someone I've sort of most wanted to interview. Did you try over the years? Oh yeah, no, I tried, I tried many, many, many times and, uh, I feel like I got close once, but didn't happen. So maybe I didn't get close, but, um, (laughs) given so many aspects of his record, which are controversial and perhaps that's euphemistic, worse than controversial, it always fascinated me the degree to which he was embraced by a large chunk of the media and also just embraced by sort of, you know, elite is an overused word, but elites in New York and Washington. And Ted Koppel, who is a journalist who I think a lot of people think of as one of the more serious and important journalists of the second half of the 20th century, hosted Nightline for a long time, which was a very important television program, was known for his long sort of Uh, friendship with Kissinger. And so I thought that it would be interesting way to shine a light on Kissinger's legacy by talking to him about it. And as I said, it it continues to amaze me the degree to which he was so close to so many people, even people who covered him. By the end of the conversation, did you feel like it was more about the responsibility of journalists than it was about Kissinger's actual legacy? Uh, Yeah. I mean, I think that there have been a lot of books written about Kissinger's legacy. Um, I've reviewed some of them. I've thought about them. But I, I do feel that that's it's definitely worth talking about, but uh, I did an interview after he died, which is more about his legacy. But uh, yeah, no, I was interested kind of in, in that angle of Kissinger, his relationship to, to journalists. And then what did you learn in the later interview about Kissinger's legacy? Well, you know, one of the things about some of the interviews I do is I'm allowed to express an opinion sometimes. And so I think it was clear in that interview that I do not think Kissinger has a great legacy. But the reason I I wanted to do that interview about his legacy after he passed away, this was with Richard Haas, who was the former head of the Council on Foreign Relations and a former Bush II administration official and uh, in the State Department and, uh, you know, an important foreign policy person in Washington, was, you know, that it's often talked about that Kissinger's legacy, um, I think sort of the conventional wisdom is that he did some terrible things, but it was in kind of the hope of grand strategic bargains, which he helped make, you know, with the United States and the Soviet Union, with the United States and China. So I wanted to explore that tension, even if I didn't particularly agree with that's how one should view his legacy. Just this idea of doing these terrible things for the greater good, which I think is how Kissinger's defenders see his legacy. Do you think it's necessary for us to reach a consensus about Kissinger's legacy, or do you think that it's, um, I mean, it's interesting because I feel like Kissinger is this weird situation where, depending on who you talk to, it seems like people are really divided and they continue to be so, you know, after his death, even though all of the obituaries alluded to were, you know, directly described the war crimes. Yeah, I mean, I would say two things. I mean, I, I think reading the tone of the obituaries in the mainstream press, they were quite different than I think 
15 or 20 years ago, if Kissinger had passed away, they would have been. I think that the conversation around Kissinger's, the darker aspects of his legacy have become important to how he will be remembered. And I think that's good because I think it's more accurate. I think it's closer to the historical truth of what happened. The other thing I would just say about its importance is, you know, the United States is the most powerful country on earth. Um, We talk a lot about democracy, in my opinion, as well we should. I think democracy is important. And I think that the degree to which the world can be a more democratic and happy place is a good thing. And I think for both practical reasons and moral reasons, it's important that the aspects of United States foreign policy that do not always align with democracy or do not frequently align with democracy abroad should be talked about because if we are going to preach these things and talk about their importance, we should try and live up to them. And so it's my feeling that someone like Kissinger, it's important to talk about Again, in my opinion, the United States fell short in a lot of ways uh, during the Nixon-Kissinger era, during the Ford-Kissinger era. So I think I think that's important. So I'd like to pivot and talk about another interview that you did with a journalist, which was Fareed Zakaria. And you guys talked about how Prime Minister Modi has changed India economically and yeah. politically. So for listeners who haven't closely followed this story, I mean, it's not always at the top of the American news cycle, even if it perhaps should be. What exactly is happening there? Yeah, so... Um, Prime Minister Modi has been in office. He's been prime minister since 2014. He was reelected in 2019. Uh, he's extremely popular. A lot of, you know, the sort of main poll you see from Morning Consult has him as the most popular leader in the world. He's probably going to be reelected next year for a third straight term. And he has moved India, I think it's fair to say, in a decisive direction. You know, India is sort of famed, even if it hasn't always lived up to it, to sort of its secular constitution. And um, despite the fact that the vast majority of the country is Hindu, to sort of a secular society, which, again, with some exceptions, uh, the state of Kashmir and elsewhere, they've lived up to in many ways, um, but, you know, not in all ways. And he's moved it in much more of a Hindu majoritarian direction. And one of the things that, just to go back to our previous conversation about Kissinger, is the United States has gotten very close to India. This has been going on for several decades, and um, it's gotten more so under the Biden administration. But this was true, again, in the Trump and Obama administrations, and even going back to the George W. Bush administration. And I think the United States sees India as a democratic partner and perhaps most importantly, an ally to go against China. Um, India and China uh, have a lot of longstanding issues going very far back and have a very complicated and sometimes fraught relationship. And so, you know, I think that the United States under Biden has tried to walk a line of very, very, very gently talking about human rights issues in India, which have become more important and scarier, frankly, under the Modi administration, while at the same time wooing the Indian government and trying to sort of create a strong Indian-American partnership. And so what I wanted to talk to Fareed Zakari about was was these issues and sort of how the United States could, and to the degree should it, while it's wooing India, express concern about these issues. And where did where did Zakaria sort of land on this? Because I could it's hard to tell when reading the interview where, whether Zakaria is a, a critic or not necessarily a fan. But I guess I'm wondering, like, how much in a conversation like that are you trying to pin down your interviewee in, you know, a certain camp? Yeah, no, I mean, sometimes you're trying to pin down someone because you sort of want to want to sort of clarify. I, I, you know, I'm trying to remember exactly what I felt going into that interview. I think I felt with Sakaria that um, who's done some some good stuff about India and his television program, but also some stuff that I thought was a little bit euphemistic about what was going on there. I thought it was interesting because I thought it reflected some of the coverage of India broadly, which mm-hmm. is, again, this really important giant and believe it's now the most populous country in the world country. And 
And there is some concern definitely about the direction it may be heading under Narendra Modi, but at the same time, a lot of celebration of India's arrival onto the world stage. And so I was interested in that balance in Zakaria's coverage and in the media coverage generally, and also just how he how he thought about it. Do you find that there are like distinct challenges to interviewing journalists like Zakaria, like Koppel, or I mean, what is it interviewing someone who is, um, you know, a skilled interviewer themselves? Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think that uh, journalists actually are fun to interview because generally they're um, they like to talk a lot, and uh, <laughs> that's you for need sure. That in a, yeah. yeah, you need that in a Q and A. So I. I can't really remember talking to a journalist where they were just sort of didn't, you know, sometimes you're interviewing someone and they kind of give you a two sentence answer and you kind of think, oh, I need a little more than that. And you kind of have to prod and push. You don't have to do that so much with journalists. But no, Zakaria, I thought um, we didn't agree on everything in that interview, but I thought he he came in and really wanted to talk about it. And so, you know, it was sort of what I hoped in that sense. He really wanted to engage on these issues. But I do think, yeah, you know, I better question for him, I guess. But, you know, I do think that he's a little bit unsure about how much he should be celebrating kind of India's rise onto the world stage and so on and so forth. And there are some positive developments, certainly in India versus, you know, I think his obvious concern to some degree about what's happening there. So you mentioned this a little bit earlier, but I just want to sort of ask you more explicitly about it. You described the United States' relationship with India as emblematic of the Biden administration's struggle to balance democracy and foreign policy. And I'm wondering yeah. if you can speak to that as a larger issue in this presidency. Yeah, you know, I think that the war in Ukraine, which began last year for many people in the West, offered a pretty clear example of a uh, authoritarian country attacking a democratic country and creating horrible havoc and misery. And, you know, I happen to think that the conventional wisdom about that, that it was, you know, an act of aggression and really terrible thing. And that, you know, it was important for the world and for the democratic world to stand up for Ukraine. I think that that's fairly clear cut. I think the conventional wisdom on that is true. And I think the Biden administration has not found it particularly difficult. I mean, it's, they've, they're now having difficulty getting aid bills through, but they haven't found it difficult to kind of make that rhetorical case. And I think in other areas of foreign policy, you see a bigger struggle there. Uh, you see it in the relationship with Netanyahu and Israel, where even before October 7th, there was this judicial overhaul plan in Israel, which a lot of people, including clearly people in the Biden administration, thought was a threat to Israel's democracy. And, you know, now just in terms of things like civilian casualties, again, this isn't democracy exactly, but, you know, norms of one would at least hope some of the time democratic societies for Israel to follow these things. And you see a lot of tension there with the Biden administration wanting to keep this alliance strong, wanting to express some support for the campaign against Hamas, but also clearly uncomfortable with the way Israel is fighting this war. And then just to bring it back to India, you see it also in the confrontation with China, where I think, you know, there's some desire to point out China's human rights violations, which we've covered in the magazine or myriad and very disturbing, and to make sure that we remain the paramount economy in the world and, you know, we see China as an economic competitor, concern about that, with the fact that, you know, we are trying to cozy up to countries uh, in this struggle against China, as was the same in the Cold War. We had a lot of democratic allies and we had some less democratic allies, which this gets back to the Kissinger conversation as well. But, you know, you see that in the struggle with China, and I think the administration has, um, rhetorically not always been able to kind of square that circle and explain why looking at the world as democracies and not democracies, and this is one great democratic struggle as they have in Ukraine, is so easy to apply to other contexts. 
So we've been talking a bit about um, the Biden administration, and I have to ask you about Donald Trump, in part because this is a year-end podcast episode, and Trump dominated the news this year, as he you know, seemingly always does. I feel like the question of how to cover Trump is one that, you know, newsrooms around the world are constantly asking. And I'm wondering what your approach is in terms of the types of Q&As you pursue. I mean, how do you look at this story in 2023 or, you know, we're going into 2024? Like, you know, it's obviously such a different story now than it was in 2016. Yeah. You know, I think it's really important to look at what you know, the best guess or based on what he says or whatever else, his plans are were he to win the presidency. I think that's really important to cover and cover a lot. You know, there was a point in 2015 and 2016 when Trump was running for the Republican nomination the first time. And I think it's universally agreed on that Trump was covered too much. His rallies were played on cable news all the time. And um, he was given sort of too much unfiltered airtime. But I think that there's a there's another danger eight years later that Trump is sort of shielded because he says things that are so outrageous that they're sort of not talked about. And um, he's sort of not given a pass, but that people are not face-to-face with what he's promising to do if he becomes elected. I think a lot of people do not really realize, I saw a poll number of this the other day, that the majority of people still don't think he's going to win the Republican nomination. And so, you know, I think it's important to cover what he's saying. And um, I, I think the biggest mistake the media could make now would be to sort of just ignore it and not cover him as much or not cover his statements as much because, you know, there's some fear of giving him airtime. I, I don't think that's why he's going to be elected president again. And uh, I think probably a lot of his statements do reflect where a second Trump term would be headed. So would you say that you're more interested in um, what will America actually look like if he becomes president again rather than, you know, the the legal drama? No, no. I think the legal drama is really important, too. I am not someone who thinks the legal drama is a sideshow or anything else. And I think that um, for people that complain about our political system and how Washington is a bunch of corrupt elites and how nothing ever changes— A very powerful person is being put on trial in a number of different cases, and I I think that that's an example of something that we should uh, should recognize. And, you know, not just recognize, but, you know, this is an example of powerful people being held to account, and that's a good thing for our system generally. So I I absolutely think coverage of of the Trump trials is really important. It wasn't an either-or. In terms of covering his policies, which you alluded to, too, I mean, you know, I think there's a way to cover his policies and covering his statements about them while also using the knowledge that we have from the previous Trump term of what is he actually likely to try and do or try and accomplish. If there's a mass shooting and Trump says, oh, he's going to push harder for some form of gun control, which I believe he said after a mass shooting during his presidency, I think we can safely ignore that since we know that it's very unlikely to be the case. But there are other things he said that I think we have reasons to think from his presidency that he would try and push forward based on the last term. And so I think we can pay close attention to what he's saying and figure out what what's important for readers and listeners to, to know about. What are those things? The thing that's gotten the most coverage so far is something called Schedule F, which the Times has written about extensively, which would be about kind of changing civil service protections yeah. and changing the way the federal government functions. And I think that sort of melds with, I think, what you can imagine Trump might try to do with the Justice Department to go after his enemies and so on and so forth. And so I think that you can imagine a sort of weaponized federal bureaucracy, which would, I think, be a very dangerous thing. And so, you know, that that's one area where it seems like both his rhetoric to the degree we can psychoanalyze him and what he wants to do and the way his mind works will meld with some of the things people close to him are working on. And so I think something like that is absolutely something we should cover. You know, what he's been saying about the war in Ukraine, it seems very unlikely that he would want to continue aid. You know, so there there are things that I think that, that we can make educated guesses on. Totally. And I feel like the Schedule F thing is also an example of the kind of story that 
doesn't get as much play just because it's, um, I mean, it's literally about bureaucracy. You can see it kind of getting um, ignored or dismissed, even though it's something that very much seems like it could be a reality. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess I'm wondering if there are any things that you were really trying to get to the bottom of this year that you weren't really able to get firm answers on. You know, the the big outstanding questions that you're kind of bringing into 2024. In terms of big questions for 2024, you know, I mean, the other big story, which I've not done any interviews on, so maybe this is uh, is AI. So when you, when you asked earlier how you think this year might be remembered, um, I think in a non-political sense, AI may be the answer there. And maybe even in a political sense, because God knows how this will change politics in various ways. Something that people perceive as a revolutionary technology, I think, will often change politics in ways we can't um, we can't imagine. So maybe that would be something. Totally. I'm surprised you haven't already done AI interviews. I, I have a lot of trouble grasping technological stuff in my brain, and so it's hard to get to a point where I feel comfortable asking questions about it. But maybe that's what I should spend the holiday break on. Yeah, just reading up, playing around with ChatGPT. Exactly. <laughs> Are there any, um, I guess, like other political questions that you're interested in pursuing next year? You know, I mean, I guess what the the sort of biggest question to me, aside from Trump, is that there's been a big debate about whether Biden's struggles um, and the disapproval voters express about his handling of the economy is because, you know, traditional metrics of the economy are mm-hmm. not capturing how much people are struggling. You know, the economy has been improving over, you know, the past few months, it seems like it. Knock on wood, it seems like we're going to avoid a recession. And so I'm really looking forward to seeing how, as the economy seems to be improving, you know, that changes Biden's standing if it does and what it tells us um, whether it does or doesn't. I think it'll reshape a lot of the way we look at the last few years, not just the politics of the last few years going back to kind of 2021 and the post-COVID recovery, but also just the economic situation and what we'll learn about how people have been experiencing um, the sort of post-COVID and COVID economies. This might be just like a a selfish question for me as someone who, um, you know, obviously I, I do this podcast. I, I interview a lot of New Yorker writers, but sometimes we interview people outside the New Yorker. Um, I mean, for a question like that, you know, why is it that so many people um, are upset with their financial situation and feel like they're not doing well, even though it seems like there are these metrics that we measure the economy by that, you know, kind of indicate that the economy is, you know, doing fine, or at least it's doing a lot better than it was a couple of years ago. Um, you know, when trying to pursue, you know, answers to questions like, why is it that people feel this type of way? You know, why is there this vibe that the economy is bad? Um, I mean, who do you, I guess, who would be the best kind of person to speak to about that? Because you can kind of guess what certain policy experts would say or what the Biden administration would say. I mean, do you do interviews that often with, you know, just normal... Normal human beings rather than weird journalists. I guess I just wonder how the best way to cover a story like that is and the types of people who we should be trying to give a give a voice to. Yeah, no, that's I think that's a really interesting question. I mean, you know, when you're reading a news article about the economy, it'll often start with the reporter going to someone at the supermarket and the person is talking about, you know why the price of eggs have gone up. I I don't do so many of those interviews, but I do think one of the things about the interview form is that there are a lot of different ways to look at this story. I mean, 
I don't know that I'd be that interested in talking to like a Biden administration official about it, but you know, you can talk to economists who are looking at it. You can talk to a pollster about the way people are perceiving the economy. Um, you can talk, one thing that I think is really interesting is talking to people in other countries. And, yeah. you know, the COVID was something that the whole world experienced and inflation is something that much of the world has experienced. And so by talking to someone about the economy in the UK or in Europe or in Asia or in Africa or wherever else. Yeah, looking you can at kind like of, Chinese deflation. Yeah, it's a really interesting way of not just learning about, you know, what's happening in another country, but sort of reflecting it back. You know, I think it's one of the things we should do more is kind of not just learn about the world to reflect it back on ourselves, but also to sort of try and understand trends going on in our society, political, economic, by looking at what's going on in the rest of the world. So there are a lot of different ways to handle this story, I guess. But yeah, yeah, you've made me think about how to think about it in 2024. Yeah, you've left me with a lot to think about, too. Um, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. Thank you, Tyler. Isaac Chotner is a staff writer at The New Yorker. You can find his Q&As on newyorker.com now. This has been The Political Scene. I'm Tyler Foggett. The show is produced by Michelle Moses with editing from Gianna Palmer. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. Our theme music is by Allison Layton Brown. Enjoy your holiday, and we'll see you in 2024.